0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan or turning a side hustle
0: into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool
1: facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
2: Hello everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Everybody is currently talking about The Terror. Everyone's watching it. When I say everyone, I mean some of the people that I see on social media. The Terror is a hugely powerful drama series, a horror series, and it's a fictionalised account of Captain Sir John Franklin's expedition to the Arctic where they got lost in the 1840s. Now, friends of mine have watched it and are disappointed because apparently there are monsters in it, which seems to me unnecessary. I don't want to be historically all boring and prudish about things, but if you've got a story as dramatic as Franklin's Expedition, why do you need the monsters? You know what? I walked out of Pirates of the Caribbean. I couldn't believe my excitement. Hollywood is doing a big-budget 18th century maritime history film. I'm in. I'm keen. And then loads of ghosts turned up. Why? No need for it. Anyway, we thought to accompany this TV series, we'd repeat one of our best episodes in the past. Michael Palin. You all know him. He's a national treasure. He's one of the Monty Python. He's a legend. He travels around the world. Most successful and brilliant television broadcaster of our lifetime. And he's a total legend, and it's a huge honour to have him on the podcast. We interviewed him because he wrote a book on the Erebus, which was one of the ships on Franklin's expedition. He wrote the kind of biography of that ship, and obviously we talked to him about the expedition to find the Northwest Passage and the fact that the wreck has recently been found. So great fun to have Michael Payne on the podcast, a huge honour. You can go back and listen to all these back episodes of the podcast without any ads at historyhit.tv. Please go and check it out. It's a digital history channel with thousands of podcasts and documentaries and everything you need if you love history. Someone said to me the other day, they like the ads on these podcasts. They think they are amusing to listen to. Well, I'm flattered, but I'd rather you went and subscribe to history at .TV, to be absolutely honest with you. There's plenty of funny and amusing and interesting things over there. So please head over and do that. Lots of wonderful content dropping this week, including a wonderful documentary we made interviewing some remarkable female veterans of World War II for Women's History Month. So please go and check that out. In the meantime, everybody, enjoy Michael Palin talking about Erebus and Terra, its accompanying ship on the Franklin expedition. <laughs>
1: Michael Payne, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. What a book this is. Well, it was sort of something that came completely out of the blue. And for a long, long time, I thought I'm not, I'm not a historian. I'm certainly not a naval historian. I just love the idea of the life of this ship and what it had done and the places it had been and the fact it was rediscovered. All those things sort of combine to make me feel there's a great narrative here, but there were a lot of traps on the way, you know. A lot of people have written a lot of material about, especially about the Franklin exhibition. Would I be up to, um, to, uh, you know, their their scholarly standards, but... um, yeah, it seems to have worked out okay.
2: It's worked out very well, and of course, you bring your not just your sort of historian and writing skills to it, but that of a traveller. You've seen the world, so and this book took you all over the world. We should say right. So
1: Erebus, to, w- w- when was the ship built? Where, where did it, where did the story begin? It was built in. Well, it was commissioned in 1823, um, and built at Pembroke Dockyard in Wales, which is on the edge of Milford Haven. So it was actually launched into Milford Haven where there's now a big oil refinery. And it was one of the newer dockyards the Admiralty had had commissioned. They commissioned it probably while they were still fighting the Napoleonic Wars. And in fact, after the wars ended and Britain's navy ruled the world, we just didn't need uh, a navy of the size they had at that time. So quite how Pembroke survived, I don't know. But it did, and it continued making warships, of which Erebus was originally one. And what was the job it was intended to do? It was called a bomb ship um there was a class of about six or seven of them, and they um employed mortars heavy sort of um uh, ten millimeter mortars on on board the ship, which were used for bombarding coastal positions um laying siege to places without having to make a landing so they, they were quite heavy mortars, and that's why the ship's decks were um diagonally planked and made stronger than they would normally be which is uh, i suppose origin- uh, why they ended up in uh, as being chosen for polar exploration but that was a bomb it was a bomb ship it was a warship originally
2: yeah because they- so those bombships, they were firing mortars high trajectory so there'd be an enormous sort of kick from those that would go with the whole hull had to be designed to r- r- sort of not fall apart and did that mean that they were also so why would those be used for high latitudes was it they wouldn't be crushed by the ice
1: well that was the th- that was the thing i mean obviously they they would meet ice, they would meet sort of quite light ice, it wasn't really an icebreaker. But of all the ships in the Navy at the time, they were the, they were the strongest in terms of hulls and being able to withstand that kind of pressure. So they thought, I mean, you know, the Antarctic journey went further south than any ship had ever been and encountered um, um, conditions that no ship had ever been into. So no one quite knew what they were going to get, but they, they were as strong as, the, as any ship around at the time.
2: I didn't know anything at all about that Antarctic history there, but so please tell me about that. And just but before though, what what was it in that period that was driving the British and other people to high latitude exploration, north and south pole? What what did, what was the prize?
1: Well, it was really down to a man called John Barrow, who was the second secretary at the Admiralty, and he was obsessed with polar um, successes, polar exploration in the north, because. They just wanted to really find out whether there was a passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific. But also, whalers had said there's uh, there's open sea beyond the ice up there. And so, just, just curiosity. And in the South, that was largely driven um, by the need to uh, make a magnetic map of the world. It was very, very important at that time how, to understand how magnetism worked and the, how the magnetic field of the Earth worked. And this really involved lots of observation. Um, places being sort of erected around the world to test uh, the measurement. Once they understood magnetism, then um, navigation would become much easier, uh, much easier to steer ships, understand about currents and everything. So that was the main motive for the Antarctic journey. But I suppose you could also say that that they did it because they could, because after the Napoleonic War, Britain's navy really did um, rule the seas, um and they were the sort of if you like they worked for clients like von humboldt who was a great german explorer um and gauss and people like that a lot of a lot of european research had been done especially in germany into um into terrestrial magnetism so the british navy was uh, you know working for these clients as it were um taking the ships down there which they couldn't themselves afford um, so, you know, it was, it was Britain was at that time reasonably settled. They had a strong navy. They could do it. So they did.
2: And these, tell me about the human, what sort of sacrifice did the humans on the ships, the crews have to bear? I mean, how long would they be away for? Tell, no, typical, well,
1: tell me about the Erebus's journey down to the, the South Seas. The Erebus journey to um, the Antarctic was, I mean, they had instructions from the Admiralty to stay for at least two um, Antarctic summers uh, exploration, best time for exploration in the end they made three separate um, uh, voyages right into deep Antarctica so the men were away for almost four years Uh, they had time ashore, uh, Tasmania was very important or Van Diemen's Land as it was then called Um, it was in Hobart that they had time ashore but apart from that, it was either at sea or in the ice um, or in the Falkland Islands, where they spent quite a considerable amount of time. But none of them seemed to like it there at all. And terrible things happened down there. But these were the, the uh, Tasmania and the Falkland Islands were the two sort of stop off points of the Antarctic. So, yeah, four
2: years away on that journey. and. It's worth remembering, I mean, was anyone volunteering
1: for that mission or were they, 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 would they be impressed men? Who, who, did anyone have any choice going to spend four years away? No, they all had a choice. In fact, press gangs um, disappeared right after about 1815 because the Navy had so many people, so many sailors that could not be employed. I think the numbers employed in the Navy went down from about 140,000 to about um, 20,000 within a period of about four or five years. So a lot of sailors around Wanting a job, so they could pick and choose the men they wanted. And uh, someone pointed out all the all the sailors were <clears throat> were able seamen, which was slightly one degree up from um, the common deckhand, as it were. So they all had they all had some qualifications. They were paid well. They were paid um, double for going to um, the Arctic or the Antarctic. So you know, you made money out of it. I mean, it does seem odd that they should volunteer for something like that but this was that they they had a a captain who was prestigious they had the backing of the admiralty the ships were well stocked well looked after um you weren't going to get killed because it wasn't well hopefully you weren't going to get killed because it wasn't a sort of military expedition so it was actually very attractive the antarctic expedition and on this Antarctic expedition, what special provisions were made? What special arrangements? I
2: mean, you know, thick coats, gloves. What, what kind? Of, what were there? What mm. were, were there any innovations that the Admiralty introduced to try and keep the sailors alive and slightly more comfortable in that, in that
1: climate? Well, they did have they did have special sort of Arctic outfits, um, which were like that: and thick sweaters, coats, um, socks, um, boots, scarves, which were issued when they got beyond a certain latitude to the south so if you got a very cold day before that i think yeah. pembrokeshire so i'd probably need that in pembrokeshire <laughs> yeah no that that was they would get a special kit um usually at the begin. you know once they had gone south of the antarctic circle um beyond that you know nobody knew quite what they were going to um encounter um they had heating on board ship they had a, they had a sort of heating apparatus and everything was sort of, the heating was recycled so that when you what you cooked from the you know the, the steam that was generated and that warmed the ship as well so they had they had something to warm the ship um, but, but, yeah but the ship
2: is still made of wood no steam engine propulsion this is this is sail power is it
1: all sail power on the antarctic journey and this sort makes it completely remarkable i mean no I don't think any other vessel in history has gone further south than they did, purely on wind power, which meant when they were in the ice, they couldn't turn. It was very difficult. They were stuck and just had to hope to get through. Um, but engines were fitted for the um, Arctic expedition, the Franklin expedition. At the very last minute, and everything was done at the very last minute to get the Franklin expedition going, They said, "Oh yes, we should. We should have some sort of auxiliary power." So they got um, twenty-five horsepower railway engines off a railway company down in South London, put them in the ship, lowered them into the ships. Um, A brilliant man called Oliver Lang was in charge of the um, conversion of the ships for the Arctic, fitted a special retractable propeller, and um, and installed the motors. But they weren't. They weren't. They were only to be used uh, in extreme. Circumstances, but I mean, twenty-five horsepower is not much good in the ice. Present uh, icebreakers, it's about sort of forty thousand horsepower or something like that.
2: So uh, let's finish the Antarctic one. So they come yeah. back. They spend they spend four years on that expedition,
1: <clears throat> and and is it a success? It was re- it was very successful. Uh, most of the success came in the first expedition, which is when they discovered that there was a, a continent of Antarctica and actually set foot on it. No one no one really knew that for sure before they also discovered there was a volcano which was named by james clark ross after the ship that's mount erebus they discovered the ice shelf the rock which became known as the ross ice shelf which was 200 foot high and stretched for miles and miles no one had ever seen that before Um, they they laid claim to various islands they also um, found islands on the way to Antarctica and the way back from Antarctica where, where they went ashore, they made uh, magnetic observations, they also checked out flora and fauna um, in some cases they had uh, livestock aboard which they would put on onto the island because there was a great colonising feeling at that time that an empty island was an unproductive island and had to be productive so we're going to put some put some livestock on, they had chickens goats um sheep and they landed a few in the hope they would breed and then you know a few years time when people would come along and say this is a very habitable island jolly good and so there was a sort of crusading spirit that that uh, we we were civilizing the world as we went along it was that and in terms of sort of mapping the antarctic um, continent it was it was hugely successful and I mean, right until Shackleton went sixty years later, that was the what, what Erebus and Terra discovered was was the the official sort of map of the, of Antarctica.
2: And and were there? I mean, are there great diaries and accounts and ships logs? That, was it was it a really exciting one to
1: research this book? Um, yes, there were there were the official logs which. All the officers and the main officers had to keep. They became the property of the Admiralty after they came back. So actually, you had to be careful what you said. So James Clark Ross's Journal of the Voyage is actually quite dry, which is for a sea story. It's not necessarily what you want. But you know what I mean? It's actually very fairly formal, though occasionally he does go over the top when they're nearly hit by an iceberg. Near the Falklands, he has a marvelous description there. There's a man called McCormick who was the surgeon, and I really loved his his di- his journals because they were kind of quite eccentric, and he would talk about all the wonderful wildlife he saw and how quickly he could shoot it. You know, So okay. oh, I saw the lovely birds. I do love birds, and I shot four this morning, and I got four teal and I got four ptarmigan. So he was busy shooting anything he could find to put it get it on board ship because, of course, they had no. Photography at that time, no way of recording other than bringing the creatures back, um, uh, yeah, and and in in terms of sort of the the um, what they brought back for the naturalists, it was very very productive. So McCormick was good. Great find, which I I was given by some people in the Falkland eyes at the the, the dockyard museum in the Falklands, was access to a diary kept by a man called William Cunningham, who was a Marine on board HMS Terra. And Cunningham was a less educated man, so he was not writing such a formal diary. But he kept an entry every single day. And he he, he would just have wonderful things, either great, you know, his description of seeing the volcano... Um, what was was just marvellous, ecstatic description. But he also talks about, you know, um, people getting drunk and having to be dragged back on board when they're in South Africa or something like that, Um, how they they killed a shark, um, which he calls Jack Shark, and they dissected that, and they all ate a bit. uh, So there's a a real feeling of sort of below-stairs activity in, in Cunningham's diary.
2: And how close did the expedition come to uh, disaster? Because obviously what we, we remember so many of these polar and Antarctic expeditions uh, for, for the terrible endings and, the, yes. and the, uh, the, the privations. Did it go fairly smooth? I mean, hitting icebergs, being caught in big storms, but, I mean, that's all run-of-the-mill.
1: The Antarctic journey was amazingly successful in terms of, um, you know, they, they lost about four men in four years. They were sort of swept overboard mostly, Very, very little, actually no instances of of scurvy or the normal things that that would affect people on board ship for a long time. So they're very, very healthy. Um, But they did have this, well, they, they went into some storms, which you kind of amazed that any little ship like that could survive. These were just going across the Southern Ocean. But also... At the very end of their second expedition round Antarctica, they were heading for the Falkland Islands. They were nearly home when suddenly they found themselves in the middle of the night, confronted by a wall of ice with a very narrow gap in it. <clears throat> and um, so they all they all woke up and and in in order to avoid avoid each other and get through the the gap at the same time, the opposite happened and terror hit Erebus. Its anchor was embedded in the side of the ship. The two ships absolutely collided and crushed, and there are a lot of um, descriptions from various people on board at the time saying this was the end. There was no way out of this. Terror slipped through the gap in the ice, but Erebus was stuck, and all the um, their, their sails and their rigging were all ripped apart by the collision. But Captain uh, Clark Ross did this um, extraordinary manoeuvre, which is called a sternboard manoeuvre, which is when you almost put a sail ship into reverse. Um, don't ask me quite how it's done, but it, it's very, very difficult to do, and in those sort of circumstances, uh, perilous. But he managed to just get them through at the very last minute. And so, I mean, they just they avoided death by inches there. But I think on, on a number of the storms, you, you can't believe how they survived, and they all say the next morning, gosh, we're, we're lucky to still be here. <laughs> you listen to Dan Snow's
2: History here, talking to Michael Palin, big time, more after this.
3: Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
2: They got back to Britain,
1: but that's not the end of the story for these ships. No, far from it. Um, they would proved themselves to be stout survivors of polar conditions. And John Barrow, the great man who had been sort of the impresario of, uh, explore, of naval exploration during the early part of the 19th century, um, was approaching his 80th birthday. He was about to leave the Admiralty. He said, we're going to have one last chance to do what I've always wanted to do, which was to get an expedition through the Northwest Passage, get ships through from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And we now know enough. We've got the ships. We've got the technology. Um, and all we need now is a leader for the expedition we 'll let and let 's go now. James Clark Ross, who was the obvious man, the obvious choice, was actually quite shaken by what had happened in the um, in the antarctic in fact there's a there 's a wonderful little passage I found of a a diary um, kept by a woman called Sophia Bagot, who was the sort of i think she was the daughter of the man who ran um the naval base in in cape town and she had dinner with them when they'd just come back from the Antarctic and she said, You know, your hands are shaking and this was both both Crozier, Captain of Terror, and James Clark Ross <clears throat> said, Your hands are shaking. And apparently Clark, Clark Ross just said, Yes, this is what one night in the Antarctic did for us. So it was probably that collision has shaken them all so much. And Clark Ross said no. He wanted he'd got married, he was having children, never didn't want to go to sea again. So they approached John Franklin. It wasn't everybody's choice. He was fifty-nine, going on sixty. Most people thought he was too old for the expedition. Um, but his wife was very, very was a sort of vigorous, sort of networking lady, Lady Jane Jane Franklin, and she was determined that he should get the post because he'd been sacked as Governor General of Tasmania, and she wanted to make sure that history did him proud by, um, you know, leading the expedition. So he became the leader, and. In a very, very short time, it was about sort of three or four months from the end of 1844 to May 1845, they got the Erebus and Terra ready. They had to do some more work, strengthening of the ships, putting in um, the small auxiliary engine, getting all the crew together. And it was, all, it was all a mad rush, but they left in May 1845 on one of the most sort of best equipped and, and most sort of, prestigious expeditions the royal navy had ever launched
2: and uh, all the all the sort of modern advantages you you mentioned like they sort of had preserved food and they they began to feel like a really quite a, a modern um kit that they sailed with
1: yes the issue of of the food was was always a big one in the story they had canned food i mean tinned food had been i think a frenchman had sort of Established the the technology in the, uh, the, about 1800 something like that so even on the Antarctic they had some canned food they had a lot of canned food um, on the Arctic expedition all supplied by a man called Stefan Goldner who was not the Admiralty's first choice he was a second choice but he put in a cheaper bid and there's just a lot of talk and a lot of research being done as to whether the tins themselves were contaminated whether there was too much lead in them and all that there's there's no actually no evidence in the end, and in fact the most recent the most recent research suggests that there was no more lead poisoning in those than there would have been in the you know in pipes in people's homes generally. But it was a big issue the the cans of food. But yes, they had they had canned food. They they you know they were they felt utterly confident. And in the the, the few writings you get before they actually set off from Greenland to cross. Um, into the into the heart of the heart of the Arctic, is great optimism from all the officers. This is just going to be wonderful. We're all so happy. We're terrific enthusiastic. See you next year in in Hawaii. You know, they're honestly thinking that. The only, only time you hear any doubts are usually from the crew. And there's a very touching letter um, by a man called William Thompson. Who writes from Stromness, which is the last place in the Orkneys before they actually set off for the Arctic, and just writes to his wife and says, "Do look after the children, do look after that. you know things could go wrong, I may not see you again, Very, very touching, but none of that amongst the officers they couldn't failure was was failure was not an option.
2: Here we come, Honolulu uh, and so they were going to go over the north of Canada to into the uh, into the Pacific. where, where is the Where was their last contact with other human where, where's the last place we know they were
1: at it's um it's a, a a few miles um to the west of a place called uh whalefish island which was and that's on the western coast of greenland and that's where they did their final uh got their final storage together they had a, a boat which accompanied them from london all that way um to carry stores which were then loaded onto the two ships before they left um, they left Whalefish Island sort of uh, mid July eighteen forty five. Um, at the end of July two whaling ships uh recorded seeing Erebus and Terror. In fact one of the ships boarded Erebus and Franklin, being the sort of affable, clubbable man he was, said, Oh, we must come and have dinner and all that and uh, then they found that the the weather conditions changed the next day they had to move on back south to england so they left him and that they were the last people to see the ships and the the masts were last sort of seen on the horizon uh at the very end of july 1845
2: and do we think 1845 was a particularly cold was it a particularly cold snap so were they were they unknowingly going into a, a, a even it would have been a difficult task at the best times, but they they unknowingly going to uh,
1: a particularly frozen North Arctic Sea? Well, we do know that the years from 1846 to 1849 were amongst the coldest recorded in the Arctic. They were very, very, very severe. They actually managed to get across Baffin Bay, which is, you know, that can freeze, that can be difficult anyway. They got across Baffin Bay because... We do know from discoveries in 1850 that um, they got to a place called Beachy Island, which is at the end of Laxter Sound, very much in the heart of the Northwest Passage, because three of the men, three graves were found there, of men who died in 1846. So we know they got that, they got that far quite easily. What happened was that after that, they, they were, They were asked, they were sort of commissioned by the Admiralty, instructed by the Admiralty to go due west for the Bering Strait, not to go north, not to go south. They were found eventually in the south down near the um, Canadian mainland. So something must have happened um, in 1846 in the summer there. They sailed down. We do know they sailed down. They were beset by the ice um, in September 1846, And that was further south than anyone expected them to have gone. So that's why the expeditions to look for them didn't find them. And they were stuck in the ice there for two and a half years. And that's when they decided to leave the ships and head south and take as much as they could with them. And they all perished.
2: So so they were stuck in the ice for two and a half years living on
1: the Erebus. Cheek by jowl, slowly their supplies running down. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't unprecedented. There'd been other Arctic expeditions where ships had got caught in the ice. It was Edward Parry's expedition in 1824. They were stuck for two, two winters, and they sort of survived... Parry sounds like a great great character actually. I'd love to write a book about him he organized sort of plays and sort of shows and all that and they all have to get out and do things and put on costumes and all that. James Clark Ross was actually on one of those expeditions and um played a played part of a girl in two of the dramas <laughs> and this great wonderful sort of handsome hero had actually been in drag in eighteen twenty four but no they were they were stuck and and the in eighteen forty seven Anyway, there were many many search expeditions thirty six were commissioned between eighteen forty eight and eighteen fifty eight and one of them discovered um much later on ten years or after they'd left, a record of uh, in a in a in a canister in a cairn which had been left by the ship, saying that in eighteen forty 1840, may eighteen forty seven they were fine but they were, they drifted south they were stuck in the ice but all was well, and Franklin was commanding the ships. Around the side of this same document, and added 11 months later, is was a completely different story, which is that we, um, we were stuck in the ice for yet another summer. We decided to leave. Um, Franklin died uh, in June 1847, fairly soon after the, the first message. Uh, Fifteen officers, uh, 15 men, and nine officers had died no one was quite sure of what and we were abandoning ship so um that that's how we know that they they left and tried to head south and that's the only document left behind by this expedition and you know the navy was absolutely obsessed with documents they kept records of everything so they're they're there somewhere
2: (laughs) so that you think that they could be in in canisters hidden and dotted around the, the canadian arctic
1: well, they could be um or they could be on board there could be records on board the ship both both ships now have been um discovered under the uh, the wrecks of both ships have been discovered, so there could well be material on board the ships. The rest of it no one really i't do no one knows what 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 has happened to it. the papers will have blown away the Inuit were not particularly interested in gathering records, um written records. They believed in oral history and all that. So paper didn't mean much to them.
2: But there is quite interesting Inuit oral history, isn't there, about what, what isn't there about what might have happened for last survivors.
1: Yes. I mean almost all the evidence is from Inuit history. Um because as I say there's only one document in, in English left behind. And this was gathered by various people, including John Ray, who was a um an employee of the Hudson's Bay Company, he came from Stromness in the Orkneys. He was surveying up in the um in the Canadian high Canadian Arctic when he met some Inuit talked to them, and they said yes four four summers ago or four winters ago I can't remember what they said, but it was that four years ago we we saw um about forty Kablunas, a name their name for foreigners dragging. Um, a sled with a ship um, uh, on 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 board with a boat on top of it, south, and they also said we found bodies at various places. They gave Ray one or two um, artifacts, which had obviously come from the ships, and that's when he knew. Uh, he brought the news back that um, they had probably all perished. Um, worse still, the Inuit said that um, it was clear from the bones, the state of the bones bones in pots and all that, that they had kept alive by cannibalism, which, of course, was received as a horrific shock back in this country. But the Inuit told them that. The Inuit also said that it wasn't to the north. They actually had gone south. Um, They said they had sightings of both the ships. On one of the ships, they found a man. Um, But nearly all of this was sort of discounted because there was no written record as you say it was all oral history but the events subsequently have shown that the Inuit were almost exactly right about everything um, even where the ships were eventually were eventually found but the problem was that nobody as far as we know nobody on board either ship had a, a working knowledge of Inuit they didn't speak the language so when they did leave the ships there's a sort of <clears throat> the Inuit record or oral record of meeting a group of men Um, and they were were, obviously they said they were in a bad state but they traded some food with them but then neither side could understand the other so the Inuit went one way and the men went on further south if they you know if at any stage they had actually been able to to speak the local language they could have they could have gone out of the, the mess they were in. And this could have happened a lot earlier. But no, the ships were just self-contained worlds where everything they needed was there. They had books. They had, you know, sort of um, teaspoons with their initials on it. They had wine. They had, um, you know, they had um, organs to play music on. They had all that sort of thing. But nobody knew how to deal with the local Inuit. And once they were off the ship, they were just um, open targets, really, for the cold so you
2: are a famous traveler and you made sure during this book that you went everywhere you've been north south where
1: where, where, tell me some of the highlights the place you've been well i went to i went to the northwest passage um um and but that was kind of quite ironic i went in 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 um, august of last year and it was a it was an Expedition with about ninety people on board, and called in Franklin's footsteps. So we went to we went to Beachy Island, which is where the three bodies were discovered, and there the the graves are still there now. And that was a, that was an extraordinary sort of feeling to be walking this bleak shore, knowing this was the very first winter when three of them had died, and the ships. This is where they'd wintered. They must have looked out on this incredibly sort of bare, exposed landscape uh, for months and months before even going on south. We then tried to get, and what I wanted to do most of all, was to get to the wreck area and be able to at least see where it was. Uh, Ideally, I would have loved to put on a scuba and dive down with with the archaeologist, but that didn't seem to be possible. But we did hope that we'd get down to um, King William Island where the ships were found. We got through almost to the Victoria Strait and that's when the captain said we can't go any further because the ice is so thick that we don't know when we'll be able to get out. So it was actually just a kind of reworking of what had happened to Erebus and Terra. But, of course, the Arctic is warming much more now. It's uh, There's much less, there's much more open sea, less ice. But, you know, the ice that gets trapped in these narrow channels, you can see that Erebus and Terra were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we got so close to their graveyard i suppose you could say but but um we understood why they why they were stuck
2: Um, why uh why have you you certainly haven't lost your your love of travel what is it what is it that visiting these places be they natural wonders or place where history has happened Mm. what what is it that makes you keep wanting to visit these places and new places all the time
1: i think it's partly the adventure and the the drama of, of a new experience um I mean, I don't have to travel far. I can go to Manchester and find a bit of a city that I've never seen before, and that excite. I find that very exciting, and you have to. It opens your eyes. It forces you to look around, not just sort of st- stick in your hotel or stay on board. Um, and uh, you know, that was the spirit of all these guys who went off to the Arctic and the Antarctic, especially the Antarctic. They they wanted to see these places. They'd never been to these places before. They wanted to record them. They wanted to get out and walk around them, and that's what I always feel that I want to do um, because I, I learn something each time. I learn something about myself and my own ability, my curiosity, my, my understanding of places, um, my ability to sort of um, sort of absorb new impressions. That's, that's really important. That keeps my own brain ticking over. But the other thing is that I think there's a sort of continuity of history um, that's really why I was so, you know, happy to go to to Tasmania and just see the little area. There's not much to it, little sort of area of the bay, just outside Hobart, where the two ships moored um, for several months um, when they came back from the Antarctic, and to feel that like they were there, and this is what they would have looked out on. And there's the same lighthouse about ten miles down the, a uh, few miles down the strait so it's that sort of feeling that, that there's some, I don't know, spiritual connection is, is putting it a bit far, but, but just sort of observing what they would have seen as they left an area. It's like being in Stromness and looking out to sea and seeing the two capes, and that would be the last they would have seen of Britain. And beyond that, it's just the roughest some of the roughest seas in the world, and this is what they would have gone to. So I was a kind of experiencing... My, their own butterflies, you know, by my, by my, my, my own sort of um, my looking at it myself.
2: Now that we've stolen you away from comedy and from travel, we've, you're a historian now. I'm glad to say we've got you into the, we've got you inside the tent. How, how did you find writing history and researching it? Was it, did you find it exciting? <laughs>
1: Well I did I mean, I was trained as a historian, and that's what I did at Oxford. Unfortunately, I used to do history in the evening and comedy and acting during the day, so i, I was I rather just did enough to get by. And I get think you degree. chose
2: the right. I think you went down the right path <laughs>
1: <laughs> What history or comedy <laughs> yes. uh, but I mean it's always been a fac- it's always been an interest of me of mine um, and in fact when we were doing Monty Python we we wrote the Holy Grail, which is sort of based on sort of a version of history, so was Life of Brian. So historical research was always there in the back of my mind. This was the first time I'd actually done a, a book involving pure research. And and I, I just was very, very nervous of getting into someone else's territory. And I know people who spend years and years working on some tiny aspect of the voyage. And what I did was just take an amalgam of all that. I was very much dependent on a number of very good correspondence, a number of very good books about the period. I took these all in and decided the best thing I could do is to try and write a sort of thriller. I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be a story which carries you through and doesn't suddenly drop you in a mass of detail. And, and so, you know, one's, one's, one's um, sort of attention span sort of goes off. I wanted to keep the, keep the tension there as well as the information about what was happening. So that was a tricky thing to do. And if I pulled it off, then then I'd be very happy.
2: I'm going to ask Wendy one of those absolutely infuriating questions. Like when People come up to me going, are you tall and what's your favourite bit of history? Uh, what what bits of the world haven't you been to yet and you want to go to?
1: I haven't been to any of Central Asia, um, the Stans. And I really would like to go to the area around the Altai Mountains. I think they're in either Mongolia or one of the Stans. You've probably been there. Have you been there? No. Anyway, just because... In all the histories of Europe, so many um, uh, invasions have come from Central Asia. I don't know what it's like up there. Why did they want to leave? Why, why, why did it make them such fearsome, fearsome warriors? Um, where did Kublai Khan come from and all that? So there's an area there that I would, I would love to see.
2: I don't know about you, but I feel I haven't scratched the surface. I mean, do you do you feel you've seen lots of stuff, or, or do you still? The more you travel, the more you think. Well, there's a whole valley, the valleys and mountain ranges that just because you're walking through one area, you don't get a, you can't see everything.
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely totally agree with you. People tend to say, "Oh, Michael, you have traveled the world." I mean, I've been to many countries, but uh, you, you know, I've been through those countries sometimes four or five days. I haven't I haven't been up the side roads. I haven't seen this mountains and the canyons and the far far regions of the country because you can't get there there's always something more to see and i think that's the great thing about traveling is that it, it just asks many more questions than it gives answers and people sort of oh what's the world like well go and see it you know which bit do you mean um so there's always something there's always something else to see and i think the to me, the ticking off of countries uh, is is unimportant. That doesn't mean anything. It's where you go to in those countries, and I could go back to all the places I've visited, which happened to be, I think, ninety eight countries or something like that, and and see something there I'd never seen before.
2: Well, and I, I completely agree with you. I, I find Britain, and I I walk I walk everywhere. I explore things, and I'm finding new things out about this country that I've crisscrossed a hundred times. I'm finding out new things every day. So it's good to
1: hear you can have adventures at home as well. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and the more I read, uh, researching this about what what the scientists were looking for, and the, and you listen to Attenborough, and you read um, um, you read books like the Earth, you know, Fortis book, you realise that just under your feet, there's things that could keep you there for sort of two days just to understand that place you're standing in. So it's it's an endless task, and I, I'm I, I just I know I'll never ever complete a task like that, but you complete little tasks and that's the main thing.
2: Michael Palin, thank you so much. The book is called Erebus, the Story of a Ship. And it is out right now. Go and buy it everybody. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. I
1: feel had the history on our shoulder. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished
2: i just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I've got a little tiny favor to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favor. Then more people will listen to the
4: podcast. We can do more and more ambitious things
2: and everything will be awesome. Thank you.
4: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat,